morning, North Boulevard. Good morning, guys. Thanks for coming. So glad you're here today. Those of you who are online, coast to coast from, uh, from uh, ice cold Canada. Well, we have somebody from Saskatchewan, I think, actually, this morning, down to Mexico and then in Africa. Um, we're just delighted you're with us. Awesome, awesome to have you. God's been good and generous to us. And um, we get a chance to be together either in person or online. Uh, actually, our, first, our West Campus today opened up a second service. So the crowds there are so big that they have to open up two services now, one at 9 and one at 1030. And um, then, uh, I don't know, 1,300, 1,400 of you online. Really glad you're here. We're doing the book of Deuteronomy, and we're choosing the life that Deuteronomy offers us through the beauty of obedience. So, tell you a story. Reese Smith, if you go to a baseball game over at MTSU, you'll go to one of the finest baseball fields in North America. It'll be the Reese, field, uh, Reese Smith baseball field. I, uh, I spoke to his son uh, a couple of weeks ago. Actually, I've talked with him, I don't, maybe not even a couple of weeks ago. And was talking about how uh, Mr. Smith, who's been deceased for almost 30 years, helped to establish this baseball field. And he made the statement to me, I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty close to what he said, he wouldn't have had the wealth to help build that field if he hadn't first been poor. So Reese Smith grew up in the Depression. He grew up in a very difficult neighborhood, a tough guy, very poor. In fact, uh, his father was a firefighter. His father lost his job and the bank foreclosed on the farm. So when he was 10 or 11 years old, Reese was walking home from school. When he got to where he had lived, he saw his mother and his father standing on the street with all their property. They'd been thrown out of their houses. Now, it might be difficult for us in a land after Social Security and all the safety nets we get with the entitlements in the U.S. to appreciate what a terrifying thing that would be, especially for a 10 or 11-year-old boy to see his mother and his father terrified, frightened, to realize that they were now without a job, without a penny, and without a home. And they began to walk a couple of miles down to a, a brother's house where they would stay while they tried to figure out how to recover. And as they were walking, Reese Smith made a decision. So I don't know what all his painful memories were. Every, all of us have painful memories. But this surely was one of the greatest painful memories. And he made a decision then and there. I will not be a poor man. And so his journey began. He took a job, even as a young boy, he took a job delivering milk. For those of you who are younger, yes, they used to actually bring the milk to your house and put it on your front porch. He took a job delivering milk as well as delivering newspapers. In fact, he eventually made enough money that while he was still in high school, he bought a car, which was during the days of depression, unheard of. He had a car before his own parents did. At first, he had to go to a high school in Nashville that was a poorer high school, but he went there because they offered uniforms and he didn't have the clothing for high school. That was how he would get his clothing. But then eventually, because of his work, he ended up going to a magnet high school. When he graduated, he came to MTSU to play football. As soon as he got here, World War II broke out. I helped with uh, the funeral for Wink Midget. The business school is named after him. One of the buildings over at the MTSU is named after uh, Wink Midget. And he told me this as well. He said, when the war broke out, as a group, every single football player at MTSU 
got in a set of vehicles and drove down and joined the U.S. Armed Forces to go fight against Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany, including Reese Smith, who also went. So he joined the military, and by the time he got out, it was too late to finish his athletic career, which was a very promising career. In fact, he's in the Tennessee Athletic Hall of Fame, Reese Smith is. He took a job as a firefighter, as his dad had done, but he realized he couldn't really make the kind of money he needed for his growing family, so he began to sell candy. He would go to the store selling candy, Butterfingers and Babe Ruth candy bars, and he was good at it. He was good at selling. So good at it, in fact, that the corporate uh, headquarters asked him to move to Chicago. He didn't want to leave his home, so he realized, I'm going to have to find another job. He decided he would start building. Couldn't get a uh, construction loan, but he could get a mortgage, so he started to build his own house, and then he sold it before he got it finished. He did this, by the way, 16 times. So his family moved 16 times before he finally got his business up and running. And really, the rest is history. Because Reese Smith became such an accomplished developer that so many of the things we take for granted here in Middle Tennessee can trace many of their roots back to him. Uh, one of the owners of the Nashville Speedway, one of the founders and owners of the Nashville Sounds, the baseball team, if you go to the Cool Springs Gallery, you can thank the Smiths for this, for developing this area. Uh, not only the athletic center here at MTSU, but the athletic center at Lipscomb Academy, also named after Reese Smith. In fact, um, there's probably not a lot of places in Brentwood and Franklin and that part of Nashville that haven't in some way or another been touched by this man. So as I was talking to a son who's married to my cousin, I actually I didn't even talk to him to... I wasn't thinking about a sermon. I just was listening to the story. I just had a simple question. And I, started, I got the story. I started listening to the story. And I thought, oh, I've got to share this with everybody. One of the things that his son said to me, Steve, who's, who helped also has kind of adopted the business. And Steve, by the way, is the, he's the chair of the board at MTSU. He was very kind to me on the phone too, by the way. Very kind and very generous. And um, he said, Daddy never forgot what it was like to be poor. And he just made his mind up, he's not going to live that way. So here's the deal. All of us have painful memories. Sometimes we're a victim of something that leaves a scar on us, leaves a great amount of pain. Some of you have been victims. You grew up in terrible households, unloved, abused. I can't even, we can't even go into all of it. Sometimes we're the victim. And sometimes, to be honest, we're the perpetrators. Sometimes we're a little of both. The question that I want to raise today based on Deuteronomy chapters 9 and 10 is this. What are you going to do with your painful memories? I'm going to come back to the Reese Smith story in a few minutes. But the thing he exemplifies is a guy who takes a painful memory and uses it as an engine to make the world a better place. Because your painful memory can either become your prison or it can become your engine. It'll be one or the other. It's either a prison where you sit in self-pity and self-loathing. It's either a prison where you don't know what to do, where your view of yourself, your, your self-esteem, your self-worth goes down. It's either something that keeps you uh, really just hold up for the rest of your life, or you can take a painful memory and you can say, all right, I'm going to use that as the fuel, the, in, the engine to do something awesome. That's the choice we got. You have a painful memory. The question is, what are you going to do with it? That's Deuteronomy 9 and 10. I want to tell you something. We've been reading verse by verse through Deuteronomy. And every time I do a book, you know I read every single verse. But there are 51 verses today. 
And I decided I'm not going to read every verse, and I actually feel bad about it. But it's so many verses, and I'll go so fast you won't get it, so here's what I'm going to ask. I'm just going to do a few verses. I want to ask you to read Deuteronomy 9 and 10 this afternoon so you get the text. Let me read just a few verses, set it up, and then let's talk about what we do with our, the weight of our painful memories. Here, Israel, this is Moses. Remember, he's in his second sermon. They're on one side of the Jordan River. They're about to cross over and take the land of promise. Moses is giving them this sermon, this speech about what to expect when they get, here, when they get there. And here's what he says. Here, Israel, you're now about to cross the Jordan and go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. So I've mentioned this before. They came out of Egypt. They don't wall the cities in Egypt because they're so strong they don't need to. So these former slaves are going into a land to which they've never been, and they're looking at cities with walls like they've never seen before, and they are thoroughly intimidated by it. And Moses starts this out. Actually, this is the amazing thing. Moses starts the whole thing out, not by giving them a pep talk, but by telling them, you're, not, you're actually not all that good of people. Watch how he does it. So he says, the people are strong and tall. Anakites, these were the tall guys from the Hebron area. You know about them. You've heard it said, uh, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He'll subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my rightness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them, going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your rightness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then this is sort of a, we're getting to the operative form here. Understand then that it's not because of your rightness that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness from the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you've been nothing but trouble. Now, I want to pause and ask you a question. How many of you think of this as a great way to start a campaign? So, you know, we're raising money to build the West Campus building. We had to put it on hold because of the pandemic. We come back to it. I just want you to imagine if in the opening salvo of lessons on raising funds for the West Campus building, if I started out by saying, let's just lay the cards on the table. Y'all are awful people. You know, from the minute we started this congregation in 1947 to today, you've been nothing but stiff-necked and awful. And I'd like to ask you to join me in raising $6 million. I mean, that's what Moses does. In fact, this is the third time Moses does it. We're only in chapter 10. The third time Moses stops and says, I just want to make sure everybody in here knows that you're bad people. Like he just is pointing out all their stuff, all their junk. He's just pointing it all out. The things that they were victims of, slavery, and the things that they perpetrated, rebellion. So he goes through it. That's what 9 and 10 are. It's Moses chronicling what all happened from the Exodus to this 40-year period now where they're just about to cross over. And his story is, don't think it's because you're good people. God's not giving you this land because you're such good people. 
because you're not good people. God's given you this land for his purposes. And then Moses sort of walks through all their memories. And he says, on the one hand, they were victims. They were victims as slaves in Egypt. But on the other hand, they were perpetrators. In fact, think about this. They, while they were at Mount Sinai, they had just crossed the Red Sea just escaped bondage for hundreds of years. They're at Mount Sinai. They're getting the covenant from God. This is the equivalent of the honeymoon. They're on their honeymoon when they have an affair. He says, I've given you the law. And in the middle of me giving you your covenant, you start worshiping another God. Again, it's not the way I would have started a fundraising campaign how bad you guys are. So why does Moses feel compelled to bring up Israel's failed past three times in the first 10 chapters of this book? And I'm going to answer that question. Because if you understand whence you've come, you will know where you need to go. Memory has enormous power. Your memory has enormous power. It has power over you. It has power over the people around you. It has power for our community. It's enormous power. And many of us have painful memories that we have not yet figured out how to conquer. And that's what I want to talk about. Memories of past failures. Memory of past hurts. A memory of bad habits from the past. Things that were done to you or things perhaps that you did that you now regret. And I want to ask you, don't say it out loud, but I want to ask you, will you just lay out in the on the table of your heart for a minute, this is one I'm struggling with. Will you lay one out? So that when I talk about this, it'll make sense to you. In fact, someone said after first service, hey, that's a good sermon. I said, well, if you don't obey, it wasn't good. Because the only reason I'm preaching it is so that it'll change our lives. If it doesn't change our lives, it wasn't a good sermon. So I'm asking you, will you lay something out and analyze it while we talk? Moses wants us to know that there are two ways you can deal with your painful memories. Everybody with me? There are two ways. You can either let it become your prison or you can let it become your engine. It'll be one or the other. Let me just give you a little coaching here from this book, Deuteronomy chapters 9 and 10, on how to turn those painful memories into an engine, how to turn a scar into a beauty mark. Let's start with this verse, chapter 9 and verse 24. Moses says, you've been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. By the way, that just sounds like a terrible parenting strategy. So I've got two kids, and they've never been so bad that I thought to say to them, you know, John, you've just been a problem ever since the day you were born. That's a hard thing to say. And that's what Moses says. I think actually Moses wants the Israelites to use their past as an energy, a motivation to accomplish something great in their future, which they'll do. I'll show you in a few minutes. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to start by being honest. And I do want to say, honesty, it's the starting point of all recovery. All recovery occurs after you're honest. Recovery cannot occur for people who are not honest. If you're not honest about what you're dealing with, you will never recover from it. Now, you can stuff it, you can deal with it, you can treat the symptoms of it, but you'll never recover if you're not honest about it. One of the greatest freedoms you'll ever experience is the freedom of just telling the truth. When you tell the truth, your problems become an issue of your past. When you tell a lie, your problem is now in your future. It's always the case. Ruth Mays, I am so glad to see you. I just saw you here. When you lie, your problem becomes part of your future. When you tell the truth, now it's in the past. You can deal with it now. In 1982, 
This wall opened up in Washington, D.C., the Vietnam Memorial. It is one of the moodiest places I've ever visited. You know, the first couple of days that the Vietnam uh, Memorial, the wall was built, and a little bit later they, they put a bronze up across the way. I'm told that park officials had to remove 52,000 items that were left at the bottom of that wall the first week. Millions of people have gone there and they stand searching the wall. You know what they're looking for? So the name of everyone who was killed in the Vietnam War, all the Americans who were killed, the names are inscribed on this wall. You know what they're looking for? They're looking for a beloved one, they're looking for a buddy, they're looking for somebody. But it's deeper than that. They're looking for truth. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for something that will help them say, now I get it, now I understand it. And by the way, we've been through a lot of wars. I don't know anyone who, I should be careful how I say this, but I don't know anyone who suffered as much as our Vietnam vets who deserve whatever we give them, whatever we give them. It's the honesty that we're looking for. And so this photograph, which I'll only keep up for a moment, 1975, a Pulitzer Prize winning photograph. You see, I blocked it out of the little girl running down the street, Trang Bang, South Vietnam, accidentally napalmed, body scorched 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And napalm's designed to stick to your body. She's taken to the hospital where she's left to die. Now, if you've been at North Boulevard a while, you know her story. If you haven't been at North Boulevard, those of you who are new, those of you online, you may not know this, she survived. And not only did she survive, her name is Kim Phuc, but she actually became a Christian. And her husband's now a minister. They live up in the Toronto, Canada area. Kim spoke to us at North Boulevard a couple of years ago. And the thing that should have impressed you about Kim the most is how much joy that woman has. I don't know if I've ever been around a happier person than Kim Fu. Her body is still scarred all up and down. In fact, I put my arm around her here, and as soon as I did, I thought, oh, that's a serious mistake because I've seen the scars on her back, the photographs of them. And it just dawned on me, how, how can this woman be so happy? We got to spend the day together, she and I did. And she said, when I finally got to stand up and tell my story, I found true joy. There's something about telling the truth that really made a difference for her. Telling the truth about your painful memories. In fact, if you want to see how happy she is, check this photograph out. So on the left, you have the Skidmore happy face. On the right, it's some terrifying look. I don't know what she's about to do in that picture. That's how happy she is. So when we had her, we had her come for a lunch for some of our Vietnam veterans. And one of the veterans who showed up was Jim Bryant. So Jim Bryant was injured, was hospitalized, uh, saw some of the worst action in Vietnam. Jim, um, we love you. We love what you did. And Jim and Kim struck up a relationship. He's now, she says, his American father, and she is now his Vietnamese daughter. Actually, Jim sends me an email every so often, hey, Kim's go going through this, we'll pray for her, she needs this, that. They're in touch with it. And both of them will tell you when we were able just to speak truth to one another, some healing began. I'm just saying, with your painful memories, find somebody with whom you can speak the truth. If you massage it, if you deny it, if you pretend when you play games, when you invent myths to deceive yourself, you're just pressurizing your pain. And it's going to pop out somewhere. In fact, pain that is unresolved 
get to our next blank. Pain that is unresolved will always show itself in one way or another. It explodes somewhere else. You push it down here and it pops up there. It's a tick in your body. You mistreat someone else. You kick the dog. You spill a glass of milk down here and if it's unresolved, some girl halfway down the road has a bad day. When we don't deal with it, when we're not honest with it, we can't deal with our painful memory. Start with the truth. I'll go a little quicker. Verse 3. Be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. So I'm going to say this. Learn to depend upon God. Everybody depends on God. It's just some people don't know it. Nobody wins without God. Nobody wins without God. It's just some people don't know it was God. But if there's ever a victory, God's behind it. So while I'm talking about School of Christian Thought, let me do this one. This is Annie Lobert. Do you remember Annie? She spoke to us in 2015. So Annie spent years in the prostitution, the sex trade industry in Las Vegas. I wish I could tell you she came out of it real quickly, had a Jesus moment. It didn't happen like that. It was a lot rougher than that. But her final moment before she said, God, it's got to be yours. She overdosed on her way in the ambulance. She had a dream of her whole community. I think she was from Minnesota. Her whole community standing around looking in her casket saying, what a waste. Tears streaming down her face. She said, God, I can't stop. Drug addictions, self-esteem, in her view, her dad never loved her. I can't stop this. You have to do it. And he saved her. So when she came, you know, this was one of the first times we ever had, um, so, you know, when a church has a prostitute whose ministry is called Hookers for Jesus, that it's a little edgy, and that's what we had. And y'all don't know this, but I always meet with the speakers beforehand and debrief them and kind of tell them, don't do this, don't do that, you know, remember this is the church of Christ and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I'm meeting with her and I said, hey, Annie, don't, don't do an altar call or anything like that. This is a school. She looked at me, she said, yeah, whatever. And she got in here, and I was, y'all don't know this, I was quivering. Like, I had no idea what she was going to say. She was, was, she had a microphone, and she had the floor. And here's what I remember. At the end of her lesson, she starts crying, and she starts saying, come to Jesus, come as you are, come as you are. If he could save a prostitute like me, he can save anybody. It's the best invitation this church has ever seen. He'll take us. I just want to say, with Jesus, it's never too late to open a new chapter. You can go home today and say, I'm done with that chapter. I'm starting over. By the power of God, you can do it. By the power of God. Every victory is a victory from God. You just may not know it, but claim it. You can start a new chapter. You can start one today. Okay, we've got to keep moving. These are your people. Moses says, they're your people. So God says, after he sees the Israelites worshiping, they have an affair on the honeymoon. On the honeymoon, they had an affair. And the Lord says, I'm going to wipe them out, Moses. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'll just raise up a people from you. And Moses, for 40 days, he says, God, don't do it. Please don't do it. Spare them. If you do it, the Egyptians will laugh at you. He says, they're your people, God. They're your inheritance. And all he's saying is this, remember who you are. I told you guys that I've been interviewing people who've been persecuted around the, especially in the global south, but around the world lately for a project. The thing that really shocks me is how happy every single one of them is. They're happier than I am. And you know why? Because persecution has reminded them of who they are. Like knowing who you are matters. One of the most beautiful texts in the New Testament, you won't see it at first. 
But one of the most beautiful texts in the New Testament is this one, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is speaking to a church that's composed of mostly pagans. They were pagans who became Christians. And here's what he says. He says, don't you know wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen, listen, this is the best verse in the Bible. That's what some of you were. But now you're washed. Now you're sanctified. Now you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's statement is, don't let your, don't let the painful memories of your past victimize you. Don't let that be your identity. Guys, don't be a victim. I'm saying this out of love. I don't know what you've been through. We've all been through tough stuff. Don't be a victim. God is fighting on your side. America's got enough victims now. If the world does turn against us, those of us who really want to follow the Scriptures here in North America, the world turns against us, let me tell you something. We're not going to be victims. We have the Lord God Almighty on our side. Why be a victim? You don't have to be a victim of your painful past. You don't have to live in prison. You don't have to. You're picking it. You're picking your prison. I know it's easy to say, but it's true. If you're in prison, you picked it. Stop picking it. Well, I'm on the subject of speakers and School of Christian Thought. Y'all know that on May the 14th, Lisa Turkhurst, whose books are like knocking the top off of the New York Times bestseller list and Amazon and whatnot, she's coming. So Lisa Turkhurst founded Proverbs 31 Ministries. At the height of this ministry career, she discovers her husband's not just having an affair, but he's madly in love with another woman. I'll let her tell the story. When you listen to her, so I've paid attention to her podcasts and some of her literature, she says that for months... All she could think of was how worthless she must be. If that happens, she must be a worthless person. And at some point, she's coming to talk about forgiveness, how she learned to forgive. At some point, it dawned on her, you know what? I don't have to be a victim. Guys, you don't have to be a victim. Like God's on our side. He will let you use that painful memory as an engine versus a prison. Verse 21, chapter 9. Also, I took that symbol. So he takes that, that idol. They built an idol. While Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, they're building an idol down here. He says, I took it. I ground it up. I put it in the water. And this text doesn't say, but Exodus says, and I made him drink it. You know what he's doing? He's acting fearlessly, or let's put it this way. He's making amends. So this is a really important point. So if you're the victim, sometimes you have to remember who you are in God's image. But if you're the perpetrator, Guys, listen, if you follow Jesus, you need to make it right. You need to make things that are wrong, you need to make them right. I've been recently paying attention to Mark Twain again. I don't know why I got interested in him. I'm not even sure I like him, to be honest with you. Twain declared bankruptcy after a very successful career. He was always trying to invent something and putting all of his money into it, and he just, he went bankrupt. He got some loans to try to restart things. But here's what Mark Twain said. By the way, he wasn't a Christian. In fact, his wife was a devout Christian, and he talked her out of it, and he regretted that because she lost her faith. But as a non-Christian, he says that the only way he can sleep at night is to pay back his creditors. So after declaring bankruptcy, he worked for five years to pay back those whom he really didn't legally owe anymore because of his bankruptcy. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I can't rest at night knowing I haven't made things right with everyone else. There's so much power that comes 
when you try to make things that are broken right. Like if you've hurt somebody, make it right. You don't have to live in that prison. I'm going to tell you one of the sweetest things you can do is to go to somebody and say, I know I hurt you. What can I do to make it right? In fact, let me give you a little coaching here. Don't say I'm sorry. Don't say I'm sorry. Don't say I'm sorry. Everybody heard that? Instead say, what do I need to do to make it right? Because now you've placed your destiny in their hands. That's a real act of grace. Saying I'm sorry is like, you know, when a politician says I've been guilty of some kind of um, impropriety or something, that's just, I take full responsibility. That's just words in America. When you actually offer to make things right with people, there's a great amount of power that comes with that. All right, I have to keep going. For the Lord your God, he says, chapter 10, verse 17, is a God of gods, Lord of lords, a great God, mighty, awesome. He shows no partiality. He accepts no bride. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner. Don't miss that. He loves the immigrant. The Lord God loves the immigrant who lives among you. He gives them food and clothing as well. So you are to love the immigrant too. So here's what I want you to see. You take whatever painful memory you have in your past, and turn it into a ministry. What he, God is saying is, I love the, I love the foreigners. The, think about this. He's talking about the very people that they're fighting. And he says, I love these guys. And since I treat them well, you treat them well. He's inviting us to take our painful memories and turn them into a ministry. Really, that's what Reese Smith did. I'll talk about it. I'm going to conclude with it in a minute. But taking his own painful memories... And blessing everybody else with it. You can do that. You've been through a painful divorce. You are uniquely qualified to minister to somebody who's going through one now. You had an addiction? You are uniquely qualified to minister to people who have addictions. You got problems with alcohol? Don't fold. Don't go to prison over it. I mean mental prison. Don't go in there. Take it and use it as an engine to help somebody else. Somebody else is just waiting for you to show up. You can take your painful past and turn it into ministry. Look, here's the best illustration I know. Tomorrow night, we celebrate our eighth birthday of Celebrate Recovery at North Boulevard. It's a big deal. 6.30 tomorrow night, Celebrate Recovery here at this campus. That ministry started by a guy who just passed away two weeks ago, John Baker. John Baker was a member of the Saddleback Church in Saddleback, California, on the West Coast. He goes to Rick Warren one day. He says, we need a recovery ministry. The two of them said, well, let's start one. It's a 12-step program, but let's bring Jesus into it. Last I heard, there are now 20,000 chapters of Celebrate Recovery. North Boulevard has one. We started a Celebrate Recovery in Cookville, Tennessee. We're now coaching a Celebrate Recovery in Dalton, Georgia. And I've heard we've had influence over other Celebrate Recoveries. Millions of people have been helped with this. Millions of people's lives may well have been saved because of Celebrate Recovery. And you know why he started it? Because every time he showed up at a Celebrate Recovery, John Baker said this, I am John Baker, a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I am an alcoholic. He was uniquely qualified to save those lives. See, you can use it, whatever you got, you can use it as a ministry. It doesn't have to be a prison for you. It's sad to lose him because millions of people have been blessed by his work. And I know I'm running out of time, so we're going to finish. Moses goes up and he intercedes, talks to God, and God says, all right, I'm not going to destroy him. Because Moses spent 40 days fasting and praying, God says, I'm not going to. And Moses' comments is, God, God forgives you. Live in grace. Live in grace. That's my only point. 
You know, a lot of churches of Christ, uh, I don't know that it's necessarily fair to say, um, but a lot of us don't have a real good reputation when it comes to grace. Um, it's just, it's heartbreaking because this is a house full of sinners. That's what we are. I am a sinner. This is a house full of sinners. We live by grace. We live by grace. We show each other grace. If you're struggling with something, this is where you need to be. We want you here. We're all struggling here. We live by grace. And grace brings great freedom. So, I, don't, I didn't know you guys would know this, but it turns out that I have family members who post everything on Facebook. So, I was at Disney two weeks ago thinking I had sneaked away and nobody would know. Since you all know, I'm just going to fess up. Now, Disney is, as you know, the happiest place on earth. And every time I looked around, I saw that. And it dawned on me, it appears that it's not the happiest place on earth for everybody because here's the deal, the joy you get at Disney is the joy you bring. The joy you get is the joy you bring. The grace we get is the grace we bring. So we want to live in the grace of God. We want to live in the grace of God. I got to wrap it up. Your ancestors, I've said that three times, this time it's going to stick. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made them as numerous as the stars in the sky. Trust God. In fact, I want to put it this way. Your story was never your story anyway. Your story was God's story. You're a character in God's story. He's not a character in your story. You're a character in His story. So, I want you to look forward to the day that you can look backward at your life and say, I get it. Now, I see what He was doing. Seventy Jews went into Egypt. Remember, I've done this with you now. How many Amorite lawyers have you gone to? How many of you had surgery performed by a parasite or a Hivite or a Hittite or a Jebusite? Nope. But 70 Jews went into Egypt and out came a nation. Some of the world's leading thinkers, physicists and scientists, producers, actors, some of the most brilliant people, Jewish people, by the millions. They came out of 70 people who went in as slaves down in the land of Egypt. Kofax, by the way, Franz Kafka, Oppenheimer, a guy named Bob Dylan, Mark Zuckerberg, the now deceased Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They all started out as slaves in Egypt. And look at what God has done. And let's not forget the one who embodies all that's good about Judaism, Jesus the Jew, the Son of God. So, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that God is writing a story in your life, and right now there may be some dark colors He's putting on the canvas, but soon He's going to put the right colors on. In order for light colors on oil canvas to pop out, first you have to lay the dark colors. You know that? Like if you've ever done artwork, you know this. First you have to lay the darks, and then He put the lights on top of the darks. It may be that right now God is just putting the darks down so that when He puts the light on, it pops out. So, I got to talk to Steve Smith, the son, one of the sons of Reese. It's an awesome phone call. He's so nice to me too, by the way. And um, I was Googling Reese Smith and all, and it turns out he's done an awful lot of good. So not only he and his, his whole family, by the way, instrumental in their ballparks all over uh, Davidson County that, that they helped build the ballpark here at MTSU at Lipscomb University. If you go to the park, there's a park in Brentwood and, uh, and Franklin, uh, 300 and something acres, Marcella Smith Park. 
That was the family farm. It's now a park. But he also had a heart for people who were hurting. Reese Smith did. So he would preach at the Nashville Union to the homeless guys. So think about this. A guy this successful would take his time out. And not only went there, but he had a heart for the alcoholics. He wanted to help them. He just wanted to help them out. Um, at his funeral, my cousin Denise told me, person after person would come up and say, you don't know this, but when I was hurting, Mr. Smith gave me the money I needed to avoid going under. And after first service, I had someone come up to me. He's a young man. He's finishing college right now. And he said, you know what? I didn't have the money to go to university. And I was telling my boss, and my boss actually helped pay for my university studies. And I said to him at one point, um, thank you for doing this. I don't know why you're doing it. And he said, well, I'll tell you why I'm doing it, because a guy named Steve Smith helped me when I was in trouble. And so I'm just passing it on to someone else. So um, the legacy of taking a painful memory, using it as an engine, is right in front of you. And I want to make sure that you understand, we all got painful memories. The question is, are you going to let them be your prison or are you going to let them be your engine? So though I didn't call to ask this, as we were talking, Steve did say this, and I think I have this right. He said his dad once commented after leaving the Nashville Union, the uh, homeless shelter. He said, you know, here's a guy who never forgot he never forgot that day as an 11-year-old boy what it felt like to see his mom and dad standing on the street. He never forgot that. And so he says, if I help one person, it will all have been worth it. You guys get to pick what you're going to do with your memories. You get to pick. They can be a prison or they can be an engine. We're going to do a song now. And when we do the song, we've got some folks who are going to be in the back in the foyer. And they're back there to coach you or disciple you or pray with you. And I want to invite you, if you want somebody to help you work through something, just walk back there while we're singing the song. Those of you who are online, there's a button you can click. We have people online ready to pray for you, coach you, disciple you, whatever you need. We'd love to help you with this. Guys, you follow Jesus. You follow Jesus. And so you can take all the painful garbage in your past and do something awesome with it. You tell us how we can help. Let's stand up and let's sing.